This is Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can follow Berkeley Talks wherever you listen to your podcasts. New episodes come out every other Friday. Also, we have another podcast, Berkeley Voices, that shares stories of people at UC Berkeley and the work that they do on and off campus. Bienvenidos a todos. Welcome to our Latinx Thriving Initiative podcast, where we take on the question of what it means for UC Berkeley to become a Hispanic-serving institution and the direct impact it will have on its Latinx campus community. By bringing together Latinx-identifying faculty, students, and campus organizations, we create a conversation with the university to center the needs of the Latinx community on campus. Welcome, everyone. Bienvenidos a todos to our first podcast episode of the Latinx Thriving Initiative. I'm your host, Angelica Garcia, with two special guests. Today, I have the pleasure of joining in conversation with Dania Matos, who is the Vice Chancellor, and Fabricio Mejia, the Associate Vice Chancellor for the Division of Equity and Inclusion at UC Berkeley. Welcome, Dania and Fabricio. Thank you for having us, Angelica. Hola, saludos a todos. Thank you. Great to be here. In today's episode, we will be discussing the effort and plans behind the Latinx Thriving Initiative, UC Berkeley's effort to becoming an HSI, a Hispanic-serving institution. I wanted to begin by asking both of you about your educational journey and how that has led you to the position that you hold today. I think this is so important because the power of storytelling and having people hear themselves in this podcast is really important for that. I always say education started in the womb for me. And so like I started, I was born to a single mom who raised me uh, to know that I was inheriting a struggle and I had a responsibility to do something in the world. So she always also said, education is one thing no one can take from you. Right. And that was really powerful for me because I saw like her actual sacrifices to that. So I was born in Puerto Rico. Um, and we moved to Miami when I was two because she wanted to finish her college education and be an example to her two-year-old daughter. So when I say it started young, it started really young. Um, and just seeing my mom take me everywhere, maybe places where I wasn't even supposed to go before there were student, student parent centers. My mom was that student parent building systems for herself because not all systems are built for us. Um, and we left my whole family. She left by herself. And so that that courage and that fearlessness is something that's been within me. And so for me, it's just been one of those places where I knew that my education and my fulfillment really started at home, right? I was educated in spaces where the textbooks weren't really reflecting my story. Uh, they weren't honoring the colonial relationship of the United States and Puerto Rico. And I was getting that from my mom and my abuelita. Um, and I'm so grateful to them because in many ways I should have paid them the money that these schools were charging because they were doing that so much more powerfully. Um, I also knew I had a big mouth and I picked a career that would help me get into some good trouble. So um, I became an attorney because I wanted to translate the law for my communities. I saw it harming my communities in so many ways. Uh, for those of you who are go to law school, I'm excited. When you get to criminal law cases, a lot of the um, cases will have United States versus Ortiz, which is what my family's last name is, or United States versus Menendez, or United States versus, you know, um, insert Latine last name or Latinx last name. That was really hard to see that, you know, we were often the defendants. And when I was one of the first or the only people always uh, often looked to me, I was dreading the day that there was going to be United States versus Matos, because I was going to have to sort of explain that. So, um, and, you know, Really having that zealous advocacy became really, really important. So my journey took me to there, to law school, to many different spaces and places. I was helping my single mom um, pay for my younger sibling's education. And so I started my career in corporate law because they pay well, uh, but it wasn't really where my heart was. Um, and so when we talk about sacrifices, sometimes it's being able to do those things too. And then when I wrote the last check to my brother's school, I said, I'm going to go do me. And so federal public defense was where my heart was. And really, really gratifying. And the thread in my client's story is that oftentimes there was no one to see the greatness in them when they didn't see it in themselves. And at the time I was doing consulting for my undergrad in this work uh, of equity, inclusion, belonging, justice, and diversity. And I really took the time to realize where's my heart? My heart was there. 
how could I make it where I'm not celebrating one less sentencing guidelines or one less day in jail, but I'm actually celebrating them not being impacted by this system? Because let's be real, higher education is another system. Um, But for me, that's really kind of the educational journey doesn't end. Right. So that's kind of a little bit of the pathway and hoping to to do more learning and growing now here at UC Berkeley. Yeah, that's a great question. My pathway, um, I also started uh, with my mom. Right, uh, She came here as an immigrant uh, at 17 at the Mamas. Yeah. And uh, and she had a vision. Uh, she had a vision that that uh, her family, whenever that that was uh, established, was going to live a better life. And she saw that through education. Uh, so even though we didn't know how to navigate higher ed, even though uh, we didn't know what that would entail, how we were going to pay for it, we just knew that that was just a given. You're going to college, and whatever else uh, you think is important to you, figure it out. We're, we're going to do that as a family. So um, fast forward, you know, and I watched my mom navigate uh, being a leader in the union, uh, navigate um, her 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 queendom at home, uh, what I what I would call. Uh, and then have to act different as a woman of color, uh, being a custodian and being a leader, and and uh, that would always piss me off. Um, that that um, the dignity of our of our parents they can't always live that uh, in in some of these structures, and so uh, I saw that early on, uh, and I I was like, uh, that's bullshit, and I got to do something about it. Uh, so then I fast forward. I came to Berkeley. Uh, didn't know um, as an undergrad, and really had no sense of um, how I was going to make it here. Uh, how I was going to pay for it, uh, had a real sense of imposter phenomenon, imposter syndrome, what they call it. Uh, and uh, because if, I felt like it was so much on me, right, that that if I didn't do this thing that uh, was from my family, uh, how would I go home and, and look him in the eye? And so there was a, a real sense of anxiety uh, and um, a lot that I didn't share until I finally did. And, and for me, you know, the programs, some of the programs that uh, like EOP and other folks uh, here – were really that first space where I was able to talk about what it meant to be a first-generation college student, what it meant to navigate a system like Berkeley that wasn't built for us. Uh, and that's where the seeds of like this work started for me, even though when I graduated, I went to go work for a law firm and decided that was not my avenue uh, and uh, came back here and said, you know, I don't know what the hell I'm doing to my former counselor. And he's like, you know what's interesting? Everything that you do on the side, peer advising, peer counseling, mentoring, like why why not counseling? And I was like, oh shit. I went home and applied for my counseling masters uh and applied for a job here eventually and became an EOP counselor. And then the imposter phenomenon followed me there, right? As as a professional, first time any of us in my extended family, 13 brothers and sisters from my dad, uh, was uh um uh, in this kind of work. Uh and I remember my, my 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 dad used to say, you know, Miko, if you if you you made it, if you work in an air conditioning, like if you work in, in out of the sun, like you made it. Uh, and so here I was uh, as a counselor. Uh, Berkeley didn't have air conditioning because we didn't we didn't have you know climate change at that time. Um, but the point was, you know, I wasn't out in the sun. I was working in in, in a job that was um, a little more safe. Right, we didn't have to worry about getting fired for no damn reason. Uh, like my parents did uh, and had to face. Um, and But I had to navigate being a first-generation professional, right? So everything that I did from there was to really think about um, how do I set up structures and systems and programs where where our, our people don't have to navigate that by themselves, that it's intentional, it's built with us in mind, it's changing uh, the nature of it. Uh, and I will say I did not see myself as a leader then. I saw myself as serving the community in whatever way I had to. Uh, and it, wa- it wasn't until, and, I, and I'll fast forward, um, someone made me understand that the kind of leader I was um, was needed too, right? That an introvert, somebody that can really understand people, read situations, communicate things, bring perspectives together, was, a, was an equal skill than somebody that can come in. And, and like we, we're all needed in our various ways of being on uh, whether it's introverted, extroverted, or or ambiverted in the middle somewhere. Uh, and it wasn't until I began seeing myself in that light that I saw, yeah, you know what, I do have something to contribute. Uh, and and that um, uh, that confidence in me and, and, and being a leader grew. So that was a little bit of my journey. No, yeah, I mean, even just thank you so much for, for sharing that. And, and, you know, 
having being being able to share something like that because it's not easy to share the things that we go through that imposter syndrome that doesn't stop following you and i feel like i mean even myself just thinking of how like i'm an undergrad right now and obviously imposter syndrome hasn't left and just to think that after i graduate it won't leave me and i remember i saw a quote something about how like you never get rid of imposter syndrome but you just learn to cope with it you learn to have it there as your companion at all times like you befriend it um, because that that's always going to follow you. And I really like how you said, Dania, that it started in the womb. Like, I feel like our, based on what you both have said, like our mothers are some, they're so powerful, like they're chingonas. And so there's, there's a lot of things that go on within like our educational journeys that, that do bring us to the positions that we're at, the position that I hope to be in the future as hopefully as an, as an advisor at a high school. Um, but thank you so much for sharing that. And just, creating a creating systems creating uh spaces and and things like that where we can thrive is definitely something that is is the topic of what we're discussing today right so um now i, I with that being said like i want to move forward to asking both of you all questions about the latinx thriving initiative and where uc berkeley finds itself on the path towards an hsi designation um to start off what what is the latinx thriving initiative I wanted to go back a little bit to what you were saying, Angelica, about imposter syndrome and maybe some of the shifting in narrative. And you're right in that it's important to have language that carries, you know, with us and stays with us and recognizing it to interrupt it, but also the recognition that like systems and institutions weren't built for us. So the institutional syndrome and naming that becomes important, right? And that's a little bit of what we are building through the Latinx Thriving Initiatives. Emphasis on the S, y'all, because it's a plurality of things, right? It's not one single answer that's going to um, uh, address it all, but it's really thinking about how what's the institutional syndrome here at UC Berkeley and how have Latinx communities not been centered or um, thriving in these ways? So it really becomes important in that way. Um, I talk about this often as a legal scholar practitioner. The federal government doesn't always designate us the way we choose, right? So um, there's a, a practical standpoint of this that's about becoming a Hispanic-serving institution. So that's why you'll hear HSIs a lot. Um, and it's important in that naming and framing. Um, but I know, and Dr. Gina Garcia is a sort of national expert who talks about this. Uh, but for us, it's really taking it beyond that, right? Because becoming an HSI is about... 25% enrollment of undergraduate students. But by the way, the federal government does not count graduate students, and we care about graduate students here too. Um, and then um, the Pell, right? So 50% Pell. And that's just target and points, right? For, for us, we're thinking about to really build this ecosystem where we are honoring bringing in more Latinx community, but also honoring the different ways of knowing and being, which are so counter to the way U.S. higher educational system is done, right? You think about it, it's one individual, it's a GPA, it's not a community effort, right? It's not, it's learning from a lecture, right? Or someone speaking at you versus speaking with you. And so those nuances become so important. Um, so Latinx Thriving Initiatives is a multifaceted campus-wide effort, but not just campus, right? It's really thinking and honoring our mission of a public institution and how do we center community in that? And we're not just a community center that people come to or get admitted to and leave from in four years, but a place where um, they're having an impact, right, and creating that. And so as you can imagine, it involves all the things um, that is Latinx thriving. But um, as we shared in our educational journey, it also becomes really personal, right, as, as being a part of my community. It really matters to me that I get to be everything my younger self needed. And I get to be in a position of privilege now where I get to say that, you know what, this would have been really good. Those moments where I was like crying because a professor said something in a classroom or I explained the, the cases in my criminal law class. It would have been really great to have a professor contextualize that, right, so that my classmates were not walking away with, oh, folks with this last name are all criminals. Um, and so it, it's all those nuance points and it's the collective effort that it's going to take all of us. So. Um, I really love it. And at the same time, it's really soul filling in the way that I get to do this now for not only myself, but everyone across this community. And and I'll, I'll add that I think there was intentionality. I know there was intentionality, I don't think, uh, in adding the S to initiatives that, that it's, 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 it's collecting all the work that is happening, honoring uh, that historical effort, that ongoing effort, but also asking ourselves, what else? Uh, what does it look like to have a Latinx student body 
Latinx staff, Latinx faculty that are all thriving from the moment they conceptualize is Berkeley a place for me to the moment they land on the campus and say, where where do I see myself uh, in this environment? Uh, how do I meet my aspirations? Am I getting the support all the way through? And then that there is intentionality and design in how folks um, develop themselves through that. I, I think a lot about um, uh, Professor Tarayaso, who talks about community cultural wealth. And um, and I, I won't get deep into it, but she breaks down, I believe it's seven different ways to measure uh, a community wealth, right? That there's a way to measure wealth around money, around education, around blah, 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 blah. But there's also a way if you want to center uh, uh, Latinidad, Latine, Latinx folks, that you lift up particular ways of measuring uh, wealth, uh, aspirational wealth, uh, you know, the ways in which we build community wealth, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and this gets to, to the, uh, Professor, um, Professor, uh, soon to be, uh, be, <laughs> be <laughs> Vice Chancellor Matos' uh, um, this take that, that it's, it's really a broader look at uh, what do you center as, as excellence, as, as what we want to achieve? Uh, like what's the outcome? Uh, when you come to this campus, you're transformed into something or you transform it. Uh, what does that interplay and what does that mean and what is centered in that transformation? Because if we let the narrative be dictated for us, it'll continue to center whiteness as as the outcome. And I also wanted to name that part of it is that as we are dismantling things and honoring the Latinx community, it doesn't mean we're taking away from others. That as we are sort of being able to say, like, actually, this communal learning or community way of learning is more responsive to centering community, that benefits everyone. And that scarcity mentality is exactly what white supremacy culture will have us think, right? So really thinking that it's a benefit for everyone and that there's enough for everyone. Like, I like to live in a world of abundance and possibilities um, and making it so. So it's really important to see the Latinx Thriving Initiatives is really something to benefit everyone, where we say, you know, to be Latinx thriving is also to address anti-racism. It is to address disability justice. It, it is to address our STEM initiatives. It's to address our LGBTQ plus community so that they're all connected because we know just, you know, everyone around here are listening has so many stories and there's so many parts of who you are, right? That these initiatives are really cultivated for you, by you, um, and that there's no one individuality to it. So I, I thought it was important to name that. And I'll give you, I'll give some examples of that. I think when we think about the kinds of things we're lifting up in the LTI, it's looking at um, culturally relevant outreach, right? And that's something that's just not Latinx focus, right? You think you could think about that from an AAPI perspective or an African-American uh, black community perspective. Or if we think about culturally relevant uh, counseling and psychological services, that's across the board. All the communities are saying we need to do that, we need to have that. Or if we think about representation at the cabinet, that's an across-the-board issue. And the structures, so the structures we're trying to build are addressing that across the board, but also in unique ways. You know, what is it that about the Latinx community in terms of how it's that's needed to be done? And that's the kind of the secret sauce for that particular one. Um, uh, for when we talk about issues, thank you so much for for sharing that. Um, I going back to the part where you you talk about how you know this isn't just the Latinx community. You can't define it in just in in one sentence. It's it's very inclusive. Like there's there's a lot um, of different identities within the Latinx community. So going off of that, like who who is on this committee and who are the different voices in, in LTI? Yeah, that thing, that, that's really important. And as an Afro-Latina, it's even more important, right, in terms of visualizing that and addressing anti-indigeneity through that. Um, first of all, come one, come all. We are always recruiting. It is open. So we really want people to engage in this effort, lti.berkeley.edu. I'm sure there'll be a link with that. Um, but we were intentional in the design. And so um, in about 2018, our Chancellor, Chancellor Chris, made um, announced the bold goal that we will we come in HSI by um, 2027. And in that, there was a really robust HSI committee and task force report that came out from that. Um, and that's to really recognize, you know, we hear the phrase that 
um, I am my ancestors' wildest dreams or I want to make my ancestors proud and recognizing that one day we will be someone's ancestors and the Latinx Thriving Initiatives will be that, right? So that this work really stands uh, on the shoulders of so many, right? And it certainly predates my arrival of August 2021. So I really want to honor that and acknowledge that space, but also that it's been intentional in design and flexible and a living initiative, right? Because of the people that embody it. So from the task force report, there were 12 recommendations, including what committee recommendations can look like. Um, Right now, we have a steering committee and an implementation team, and there are more to come, including things like an external advisory board for fundraisers. So I want to turn it over to Fab, who's one of our co-chairs of our LTI steering committee, um, to share a little more and to recognize that it was important that um, to do for me to do open calls to the community, right? So in in our engagement, um, recognizing this is an uh, all campus effort, it was, there was always the opportunity for people to come and sign up, right? Sometimes you hear that people were appointed, right? And all those things, so it makes it feel a little more closed. But even in the way and the process in which we are um, building out the initiatives, it's to identify and honor all those things that we talked about, right? So, Fab, I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, I think there was, I would say, uh, well, I know there was a lot of intentionality in, in um, what we were trying to achieve with each body, right? So when, you, when um, as Dania mentions, the the steering committee, myself and uh, uh, Vice Provost uh, Lisa Garcia-Badoya, uh, and the group really thought about um, which perspective, who do we need to have buy-in uh, on this committee, right? So Usually, what'll happen, and I and I've been on these committees for for many many years since since I started professionally in two thousand in two thousand I believe is when I started. Um, and one of the things that I saw was it was the usual suspects, right? And so we were always saying, "Well, here's what we need to do," and blah 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 blah. But we didn't really think about, well, who do I need to have at this table? I need to have somebody from the vice chancellor of finance. I need to have somebody from development, which raises all the money. I need to have somebody on the academic side of the house that's really making decisions around faculty so that each um, need was being looked at and who's the decision maker uh, for that. And and so when we thought about the um, steering committee, we did it with that purpose in mind. You know what? Let's not have it be just an E&I thing because it needs to be across the board. Let's make sure that if you're missing from this, that says something about your dedication to this goal and it was helpful to have the, the chancellor say, we want this to happen. Uh, and, and and so Daniel was able to take that and say, I need somebody from your area uh, representative here. Uh, and then from that, it's thinking about that what happened is the steering committee put together all the recommendations, all the things we needed to make happen. And then we put together what would be an implementation team, which you see being launched right now, uh, which is the 12 short-term uh, things, the things that we thought could be done within a one-year time frame. Uh, and the implementation is being put together with that in mind. Uh, if the recommendation is X, and then let's say it has to do with um, HR, right, and the way we recruit or X, Y, and Z, who, what's that small action team that needs to be put together to be able to bring, uh, here's what we're doing, who, here's what we're going to do, and begin moving that along? Uh, and then the steering committee, which I, which we continue to sit on, holds the things that are beyond a year, things that are a policy and practice that we need to change, that maybe they take a little bit longer than a year. We're going to need to, to involve Danya and others and the cabinet folks um, that are a little more complicated to move uh, so that we're moving on parallel tracks. Like what can we get done within a year? Uh, and then what is still moving uh, on the other track as well at the same time? Uh, but it's, uh, as Danya says, it's very open-ended, right? When we're, we're As we're realizing, ooh, we might be missing this perspective, we're going back and iterating and saying, you know what, can we find somebody from this, from that represents that particular need, bringing them in? Uh, but it's something, uh, for instance, when we think about students uh, and the different pockets of students, right? The undergrads and graduate students, professional schools and, and, and not professional schools. Um, we can't have every single perspective. So we're trying to build like what sits on the committee and what are um, – feedback loops that we can have at all times for, so that a community member can find their way uh, to give their perspective if that's what they want. And one of the things I love is that, you know, you could hear the word initiatives and you're like, okay, when they accomplish that, it'll be done. It's over. But we're really out here like changing the sustainable structure so that this outlives me, this outlives you, Angelica, this outlives all of us. And it really is the ecosystem of how Berkeley shows up and its way of doing and being. 
So as you can imagine, that's not a one-year thing. That's not a three-year thing. But there are things in the interim that can be done and to serve student needs, right? And really, all those committees that you're hearing is really the embodiment of community members, students, alumni, faculty, staff. So really recognizing that it takes everyone. And I think oftentimes people will hear a committee and think, well, I'm not at a level high enough to do that. But recognizing that leadership is not title-driven, right? And that you are a leader right from where you are. And I always say you are the expert of your own experience. And so recognizing that and inviting that in is also a different way um, of, of doing things that I think is really important. So people hear me, I'm like, hashtag sustainable structures, hashtag sustainable structures, because that's what we need, right? I, I really want this to outlive me and so many of us. And, and I'll also add that, that um, what I've heard before is like, the concept thriving uh, and the this whole thing of are we are we saying we're there because we're not and and Danya and I would tell you we're not there uh, the 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 concept of thriving uh, is a is where we want to go uh, and an iteration towards that it's 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 a it's a challenge to our community to say this it's this is where we need to be and that's where we're moving towards right because I want to be clear like we have never said that we're there. Uh, there are there are there are pockets that I think are are there and, and provide that sort of uh, signal that that's happening and we're on the way, but there's a lot of work to be done and, and I want to be clear about that. The other thing I hear is is you know often we think about transformation as an end goal or as a noun. It's actually a verb. It, it's a constant in in motion, right? Because once you think you have one thing done, something else shows up, and you you have to be willing to understand. And have the the humility to say, uh, we're going to continue moving until until all of it's all of us or none of us, right? It can't be. Well, I got mine and and I'm good now. And the reality is that our community evolves and changes, right? And so we can't say that what we're co constructing and building now will be what serves students even sort of a year from now, um, or faculty and staff. So really recognizing that it needs to have that flexibility and that growth and that fluidity that only happens by building and nurturing communities. That's why it is really a, a initiatives that really center the community because the community knows best how they want to be served and how they want to thrive. And we're, I always say we don't create, we don't speak for others. We create the room for people to speak for themselves. So the Latinx Thriving Initiatives is creating that room for people to speak for themselves. Yeah. And I mean, you basically kind of answered the next question where I was going to ask you about like, what does it mean for UC Berkeley to be a Latinx thriving institution? But just like how you said, you know, it's that it's creating that space for other people to have a place at the table, to be here and be able to transform, which is constant. It's not something that just stops. Um, and so I, I want to go back to the point where you talk about how, like, you're doing these these changes that are happening that can happen within a year or so and then also more. Um, so if you could talk a little bit about that. So, like, what steps has the university taken to include and support and ensure the thriving of Latinx students? And again, considering that thriving is is something that's continuous, it's something that needs to be um to become a reality because again going back in, the institutions were not made for us they were they were they were not meant for us to be here so um yeah what steps has berkeley taken yeah there's there's been so many and i'm going to invite fab also to answer so as you know there our latinx student resource center is really one of those um opening and inauguration of it of rec really recognizing a space for people to come to right so we talk about spaces in so many different dimensions Right. There's the um, third space, but physical space. Right. And, and all of those things that becomes really important. One of the things we've been doing and engaging is I've really engaged the my team um, and E&I of what it, I call it lateral engagement for collective impact. It sounds really fun and we can put it on a T-shirt. But what does it mean to really um, also uh, interrupt hierarchy, which institutions are really good at, um, hierarchy of power and recognize that that power lies laterally and that this is going to take everyone engaged in that. So I've started with my cabinet colleagues and my cabinet of dean colleagues, really bringing them their data. So the question is, what? how is the Latinx community doing in your respective areas? You know, do you know? And don't worry, I got you, right? We got the data. We can bring it in. But also, what do you see? Inviting them to really bring that their analysis to it, but also their co-construction of it, right? You really want people to feel like they're owning this piece of it and that their leadership in it to help guide it. Um, and I always say data um, drives decisions. 
but um, storytelling drives commitments and you need both, right? So how are we bringing the data and the storytelling to drive those things together? Um, And so it's working with those folks, uh, department chairs, right, students, all of these things. And the interesting thing is it's happening everything everywhere all at once, right? It's sort of um, while we're building those out, that doesn't mean that other needs don't arise. So how are we responding to the real-time needs that come with that? Those are some good examples. Right now, we have some really great partnerships with our Office of Undergraduate Admissions of our thriving initiatives. We meet every two weeks. Um, and we are going out traveling and creating spaces for Latinx students to come together who've been admitted to Berkeley, but who can also talk about and navigate that and see themselves. Um, we co-host a Power and Community Day, which is just for first-gen, low-represented, um, first-gen, underrepresented, low-income students. Um, again, to ensure that they know that they belong, that there, it was not luck that got them here, that we're uh, grateful for them to be here and that they make an impact, right? That they, we didn't do anything special and that they belong, right? Oftentimes families and chosen families want to know that um, the most special thing in their life is going to be safe here, right? And that safety has multiple dimensions, right? And I always say, I can't promise that nothing will happen, but I can promise you that they have people, and those people are right here in this room. And oftentimes those people may speak the same language as you. They may be from the same city as you, right? Um, they might rock the same T-shirt you wear. And so that connection becomes so important in that. Um, so those are some of the real-time examples. We're working also really closely with our UDAR team, which is University Development and Alumni Relations, on fundraising, right? Because uh, commitment without currency is counterfeit. So we're bringing that currency, like, yeah, yo quiero dinero, right? And so um, really building out, like, what's the story of the Latinx Thriving Initiatives and what will it take, right? Not only needs for the immediate, but that sustainable structure really becomes around that, right? And how are we ensuring that, even who we're asking and engaging are not just Latinx identifying people, right? And I, I want to just mark here that we're using the term Latinx because that's sort of what our community wants and embodied, right? I know there's Latine and all those things. So I'll put the asterisk in podcast world that um, that's why you'll hear us using that term throughout. But Fab, I don't know what you want to add. Yeah, I mean, certainly a lot of examples come to mind of what we've either done or are working on. Um, I also want to say that for us, um, what we're doing uh, uh, to support students is also tied to how we support our faculty and staff. Right? So, so for instance, when, when Alianza, what's the staff organization, uh, is working very closely with us on um, articulating what they need, what kind of support uh, would be helpful uh, f- for them to um, feel like they belong, but also feel like they can uh, move through the organization and promote if that's something that they want to do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think the thriving ecosystem really thinks about how those things interplay with each other. From a student perspective, uh, I would add that we're looking at both services that are strictly for Latine or, or are built and centered around Latine uh, or Latinx uh, uh, community. Uh, like the LSRC, as was mentioned, and, and other uh, um, spaces, but also which services uh, either also serve a large percentage of the community uh, and need to be um, built out. You know, I think about the Student Learning Center. I think about EOP. I think about the Transfer Center. Uh, I think about uh, – so data-wise, which is really important is for us to understand, and, and on the website, lta.berkeley.edu, you will see a lot of different data dashboards because we want the community to understand who are we at this point and who are we becoming, uh, right from the perspective of how many of us are first gen, how many of us are low income, uh, et cetera, because those those have implications, right? So when I think about the basic needs center, uh, I, I not only look at who communities are, but who is accessing resources. So if I know, for instance, that uh, Community X is not uh, um, accessing the Basic Needs Center in a way. I'm going to go and figure out who are the leaders of that community and figure out what's the disconnect here because we think this is a service that you could utilize, but something that we're doing is not working and we need to shift it. Because to, to me, the, the 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 student is never the issue. It's the structure that we have that's not meeting the student with uh, where they need to be. Uh, and And so we look at that in our data as well. Uh, and how we build out those services. I look at things like disability, right? We've gone from 1,500 students in DSP, the Disabled Students Program, 
uh, about six or seven years ago to you know over five thousand students, which a large percentage are, are 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 Latinx, right? And so if we're not doing that work in a culturally relevant way, if we're not bringing in staff uh, that represents the community, we're doing something wrong, right? So we look at all those those uh, intersectionalities, all those needs, uh, and try to get really complex in the way we're uh, building out these solutions and 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 this um, the culture that we're trying to transform here. And we'd be remiss if we didn't say we're at a research university. So um, ensuring that the incredible work of the Latinx Research Research Center and centering Latinx research becomes a pivotal part of it. So thank you, Fab, for naming staff and faculty, too. I didn't mean to make sure um, they're not named, but that is such an integral part of this, too, right? To so recognizing that we always say, OK, we're here to serve the students. Absolutely true. But if we're serving the students and not addressing the serving of the faculty and staff and the thriving ecosystem in which we all exist, then we're doing a disservice, right? Because everyone here is a part of the community and no one person is sort of more important than the other in that. So absolutely, faculty, staff, students, alumni, todos. I'll give one other example, too, that, that I think about the the partnership we have with Graduate Division. And so there's a, a – um, I can't remember what they're calling it, but it, it's basically a house on Channing that's being – Inclusive Excellence Hub. It's being it's a house being built out that is uh, centering uh, um, graduate students of color uh, in uh, the spaces that they have, the community that they build, the writing resources that they have to be able to finish their dissertations uh, and their graduate degrees. But it's also centering um, transfer undergraduate students, right? Because we know that that is um, the runway for transfer students is shorter, uh, as we can imagine. Uh, and we want to make sure that they are in community with graduate students of color from JUMP uh, and that we're creating those opportunities for that to happen intentionally. You don't just put people in a house and say, let, let magic happen. You know, you you create programming that is going to center those things and make that happen by design. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. When you talk about like steps, um, just like how you said, it's from the beginning. This starts like way from the beginning from what the structure is but also when students are being admitted i think it's like a hug like it's like that hug telling them like you know what like you're meant to be here like you deserve to be here and it's like that that's something that's very important as well as like i remember um because i entered i i started college during the pandemic um and i remember my mom saw uh dr pablo gonzalez which is the one that leads the the studio um she saw him on the, the zoom for eop and he was like, he started talking in Spanish. And my mom was like, tu profesor habla en español. And she was like, there's someone at Berkeley who speaks Spanish. Um, and then it was like really funny because uh, Dr. Pablo Gonzalez's dad was a welder. My dad was a welder. So I was like, wow, like there's genuinely community that I, people that I could find at UC Berkeley. And it's that's what needs to be told to students that are coming in. And it's again, it's like this recruitment and retention type of thing. Like you you admit students, you make sure that they finish their degree and that they go on to the world, but that you're still able to provide them support services even after they graduate, whether they choose to be, become a grad school student. Um, definitely like the grad, grad student community is is someone that needs we need to pay attention to that community. There needs to be community building within undergrads and grad students, as well as transfer students. I've met a lot of transfer students that um, they're they're so amazing. The way that they talk about their journeys and, and things like that. It's everybody has a unique journey. And again, quoting, but I really liked how you said, um, Dania, about how like we're the experts of our own experiences. Nobody can tell us no, you didn't go through that or that doesn't sound true because it, it is. And it's still pretty crazy because there's a lot of people who still have, have the audacity to tell you that and that it's not true. But um, I, I really appreciate being able to discuss about these, these steps and things like that. Um, I do want to move forward to our next second to last question, which is um, as part of the Latinx student community on campus, how can we students participate to make sure that our voice is heard and implemented in this process? I want to emphasize that, you know, students have incredible power. And sometimes I, I, I see them not seeing it or not recognizing. To your point, Angelica, I remember it wasn't until a magazine published that I was an expert that I was like, oh, I'm an expert. And then I was like, heck yeah, I'm an expert, right? But I couldn't believe that I had to wait for outside validation for that, right? And not recognizing that. So, you know, again, this becoming the person I am today is really a process. And all those things and, and interrupting all those, frankly, decolonizing myself, being from a, as a colonial subject of the U.S. still, um, but also recognizing those pieces. So I want students to know the incredible power they have and that it comes in so many forms of that. 
and that your voice um, is incredibly um, welcomed and your presence and the recognition that as the institution, we have to take on the labor that so many student efforts have driven and gotten us to this point, right? We know, I mean, we're in California, right? At UC Berkeley, where ethnic studies and the Chicano labor movement, all of those things um, were really uh, student-led, union worker-led, like Fab. And you have people at the Latinx Thriving Initiatives, right, who have that in their stories. Uh, so it becomes important. So uh, we can't say enough. LTI.berkeley.edu if you can't. Um, you have contact information for connecting with all of that and everyone. Um, but also seeing your stories. I remember I went to a Miller Scholars presentation, um, and one of the students was presenting his research on how are Central Americans included into this HSI and I was so inspired that I asked the student to then present at our next LTI town hall. And look, I'm one person. I can't get to all the things, right? So really, I would love to know and hear what are the spaces and possibilities? What ideas do you have, right? And when I say I, there's a we to that too, right? So reaching out to me, any one individual on there and really connected. Because one of the things we're doing is also there have been so many efforts for so long. How do we build the centralized place where this work can all flow, right? That we can really recognize and build the resources to that. Because I often say, look, when you're asking external people, sometimes they don't know the difference, right? So one group will go and then they'll say, well, we already gave you money, right? Aren't you this like group or whatever? Um, when not recognizing the, the the power of the Latinx piece to that. Um, so students can join the website, find me, I'm in Cal Hall, right? <laughs> come say hi, but also engage in, in any other way with that that becomes important. And just uh, recognizing that um, they are the reason that we do this, right? And then knowing that uh, we don't know everything that's happening or what you're navigating, right? So the more we know, the more we can immediately address that. Because your point on Hedy guys not, okay, getting here, yeah, finishing, but I want you to have a meaningful experience here. Right. I want you to have a transformative experience here and not feel extractive, right, in the way that sometimes it can. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think in thinking about, you know, there are formal ways, right? Being part of the committees, um, when you get the the call, the the campus call, we absolutely want people to apply to that, students to apply to that. Uh, and there are the informal ways, which is to send your feedback directly to Dania to our VCEI at berkeley.edu email. Uh and it's also a lot of the things that that have started started as a result of a student raising an issue. Um, I think about our, our um, program for formerly incarcerated students, underground scholars. That started when two uh, formerly incarcerated students uh, started to be in conversation, and then I got involved, and they were you know expressing their need. And my job was to listen to them and help them articulate how we turn that from a vision and an idea into a formal program which then ended up, which is now what it is, right, which is a full-fledged, awesome program with all kinds of, of resources and uh, folks involved. But they did that, right? They, they're the ones that had, they expressed the need, and then they were invited to articulate their vision. Like, if we built something out, what would that look like? Like, what would it change? You know, what what kinds of things do you want to see in practice that gets you to that outcome that, that you want to uh, want to see, Right. And so that's the invitation that we have for students is don't assume that all leaders know what's happening. And even if they have a sense of what's happening, don't assume that they have the idea of what it's going to look like to be different, right? I think once we have that, once we have good ideas uh, and, and a sense of where we need to go, that becomes a little easier for us to be begin to move things forward as an institution. Thank you so much for for sharing that. Um, I yeah, I think with students, it's again this whole thing of like the thriving initiative that's transforming, that's always changing, and it's like how you said, um, it might not apply to me, it might not apply during my time because it's it takes a lot of time, it takes money. Um, as much as we don't want money to be part of it, it, it it's everything. I I really interpret this thriving initiative as something of like you're not selfish. You obviously we all want the benefits for us we want it to make our experience a little bit more um bearable and just not so traumatic because sometimes there's a lot of students who have traumatic experiences um but just thinking about how this could apply to my brother you know when he goes to college or my kids in the future just future generations um it it really does highlight how this is a continuing progress and process too 
Angelica, can I give you one example that I forgot? I, I stopped the Miller Scholar story in a little bit. So the Miller Scholar who presented um, ended up presenting at one of our Latinx Thriving Initiatives gatherings. And to that, um, the Latinx Resource Center was then having a reception, right? So our gathering was on Zoom. And to the reception, the student invited their mentor from Laney College, right, community college. At that reception, I met that mentor, and he said, Dania, how can we do this at Laney? What does that look like? So we just recently hosted the leadership of Laney College with the leadership of UC Berkeley around Latinx Thriving Initiatives, and now are working in possibility of what does community colleges Latinx Thriving to UC Berkeley look like? And that all started with a student. Right. So really thinking even who you are and that invitation of community became so important. Right. And so um, much respect to community colleges. Right. And, and all the work and labor that happens there. So now we just have a world of possibility that started with that connection. Right. And that student and their idea and their invitation. Yeah. And then like this whole thing of Latinx thriving initiatives and institutions, it, it's just not in college. It's community college. It's high schools. It's just K through 12 overall. It's the whole system as a whole. But we're taking steps like that. And um, it, it's it's very uh, it's nice to hear how there's people at UC Berkeley, like both of you who are actually working towards this and and seeing like, hey, like we're going to do everything that we can, everything that's in our hands um, to make this happen. So I really appreciate that. I do want to move for to our last question, which is basically just, is there anything else that you would like to add um, that you think the audience should definitely know about the Latinx Driving Initiative? I love it. See, we've already transformed you. You've got the S going. Um, God, there's so much when, you know, you were sharing your story about um, visiting universities. I remembered not being able to afford visiting everywhere I got in, right? And my mom kind of, Scrambling money together, jumping in the car, driving as we could. Um, we, you know, oftentimes our students are housed, but she couldn't. So she had to stay at a hotel really, really far away because it's all we could afford and really coming that, right? So again, I, I think recognizing that so many of us are addressing things that we didn't have um, becomes really powerful and that this work is hard, right? And And, and it does take that sort of emotional labor and, and still picking myself back up after that, right? And and recognizing that like I may never meet the people that who this, this is gonna impact, but man, am I gonna give it my all, right? Or, you know, person am I gonna give my all to be gender inclusive, right? But it's really thinking about that, right? And just like it is to think that, you know, we often tout the number one public research university is gonna world the world. I want it to be the number one Latinx thriving university in the world. Right. That's what I want. And that hope and and that possibility is what allows me to lead with love and, and like give it that heart, uh, which we don't often see in these spaces and that that is valued. Right. That that, you know, yeah, don't get me wrong. Degrees are needed and all of those things. But I think who you are really matters a lot and, and how you make people feel. Right. So that sense of belonging not just sort of how they experience it, but the fact that they have access to co-construct, right? You talk about the table, the tabla, right? Like building the tabla, right? You get to pick the color, right? How many how many legs and, and all those things. So, um, yeah, I just, that it's so much more that we, we can imagine and that we're kind of building uh, for generations to come. Yeah, and I'll, I'll only add that, that I think about this as a lot of the work that we do is to change... Um, this deficit framework that um, this notion that students need to be college ready. Uh, and that, that was the mantra for, for a long time uh, when in fact it's the college that needs to be student ready. Who's coming in? How do we set up structures? How do we do that? And, and we're not saying, you know, uh, 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 and I think I could speak for, for, for Danya. We want students to be challenged. Uh, we want, because in, in in the challenges where growth happens, right, where you're pushed beyond your boundaries to do something that maybe you didn't think you could do, we don't want students to be hazed. We don't want them to go through basic needs and security. We, don't, we want to have a, a particular floor to make sure that you are in a place where it's safe enough that you can go to that challenging learning uh, uh, space for yourself and push yourself beyond that boundary. 
And I think that's that's a that's a, a delicate nuance as we, um, as I said before, what's centered at Berkeley is privilege, uh, and not just whiteness, but class privilege, economic privilege, and that's hard for people to understand sometimes that the thing that they think is just uh, you know for granted. It's not for all of us. It's not for granted. It's not for granted that uh, fifty dollar uh, fee over there uh, is 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 nothing for us. Like it's, that's a that was a big deal for my family to have to pay what other people thought was oh, it's not a big deal. It's it's only you know even back then it was like ten bucks, and for me ten bucks was like okay, I, I could buy a couple bags of beans so and, and eat, or I can go drop that class. Oh my God, Fab, you're taking me back and, you know, I don't get much time to party at Berkeley. So I don't know if y'all have parties, but those cover charges, I remember even those $5 being like, man, that doesn't mean I'm going to eat. And I had two to three jobs, right? And really thinking about we shouldn't be excluding people even from social experiences, right? Because that's part of it. So, yes, every dollar counts and we should be able to provide that. So it's not just like access to a classroom, but as we know, learning happens outside of that too, right? If I remember my most impactful moments, you know, no offense to my alma mater, but it wasn't in the classroom. It was what I learned outside of that. So, man, maybe, and also we should just eliminate cover charges. I think, again, like this whole experience goes beyond the classroom. It goes in these spaces, community spaces, um, the dining halls, the, the housing, it everywhere so um thank you so much i i want to take now the moment to thank dania and fabricio for having the time to join me in conversation so i appreciate it muchas gracias and it was great uh hearing about your your job and your your support and effort in this thank you, thank you angelita you are brilliant so i look forward to like more superstardom from you the conversation does not stop here we encourage our listeners to share what they have heard today with their peers, friends, parents, and community members. Keep an eye out for the next episodes. In solidarity, the Ethnic Studies Changemaker team. You've been listening to Berkeley Talks a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. Follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can find all of our podcast episodes with transcripts and photos on Berkeley News at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts. 